Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. It's great to have you company on this Wednesday around Australia here on Starter FM, iHeartRadio. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us on our podcast, our Prawncast. However you're getting us, welcome and thank you for joining us. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, plenty of news to dissect this morning. I'll go through some of the latest in relation to the New South Wales floods. Now, while most of the rain has moved away from the Sydney metropolitan area, it's certainly done its damage. Record rainfall amounts of up to 800 millimetres falling in some parts of the uh, of the New South Wales metro area and down on the south coast into the southern highlands and of course up around the north and southwest of uh, metropolitan Sydney leaving a, a trail of destruction so many people uh, I think in excess of 55,000 residents being evacuated and some 75 plus or even more now evacuation orders now those areas a number of local government areas have been declared natural disaster areas and that of course opens up the checkbook from both the state and federal governments for support Uh, The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has returned from overseas. Now, he will visit flood-affected areas of the Nepean-Hawkesbury River later today. He'll be there with the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. Now, also making news, of course, the Reserve Bank of Australia, as expected, increased interest rates by 50 basis points, 0.5%. Now, this will add over $200 a month, on a $750,000 mortgage. Now, if the RBA rate increases to around 2.35% by the end of the year as predicted, well, households will be paying over $1,000 extra a month compared to last year. You have to wonder how will people cope? Now, there may well be trouble brewing at the foot of the Blue Mountains. The New South Wales government is set to acquire land to build the Penrith Panthers a new stadium. Now, unions looking for increased wages for nurses, teachers, etc. (laughs) They'll be less than thrilled about this. And it also means the future of an historic paceway in Penrith is hanging in the balance. Because Infrastructure New South Wales made the shock announcement it would move to compulsorily acquire the site for this new National Rugby League Stadium in Penrith. Now, I've asked Stuart Ayres, who's the Minister for Western Sydney, to explain... I wrote yesterday on social media, Stuart Ayres, can you please explain to my listeners and followers why New South Wales taxpayers have to foot the bill for a stadium upgrade in Penrith? Surely, Panthers, being the monolith that it is, can afford to raise the capital itself. At a time when your government is calling for wage restraint, with interest rates skyrocketing and nurse and teacher shortages, surely this cannot be a priority. And this is coming from a Penrith boy. I grew up in Penrith. And also, I believe that the state government and stewardess need to explain what is to become of the Penrith Paceway. And they need to address the unhappiness of many within the Penrith community about this landmark being acquired compulsorily by the state government. 
All right, well, we'll see where that all leads to, and I'll let you know the detail of that story a little later in the program as well this morning. Uh, Yet another mass shooting in the United States of America. Um, Well, I mean, we go from uh, one to another, don't we? I've got some statistics that you won't believe. Uh, in relation to the number of shootings that have occurred in the United States so far this year. Mass shootings, that is, that have led to multiple uh, casualties and fatalities. I'll go through the detail of that story. Uh, As I mentioned, Anthony Albanese has returned to the country. He's defended himself against those that have attacked him, particularly from the opposition, calling him Airbus Albo. Um, Mr Albanese revealing that he hasn't had a day off since forever. Anyway, and he'll continue not to uh, as he addresses the issues that they uh, want (laughs) addressed, I guess. Uh, We've got a doctor's shortage, um, as you know. And look, the wait time to see a general practitioner around Australia is only increasing. And importantly, questions are being asked, what will happen when baby boomer doctors start retiring? Are we bringing through enough New doctors, and are we cur- encouraging, <clears throat> excuse me, people to take on the profession, given that you know less of the uh, less money is being um, funded into Medicare? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, we'll talk about all of that, including uh, the latest COVID news as well. There are calls now for a fourth vaccination. And that's coming from New South Wales Health, the Health Minister Brad Hazard and the Chief Health Officer Dr Kerry Chant, both addressing other health ministers and the Federal Health Minister Mark Butler in relation to this issue and Atagi are looking at it. Uh, It comes, I think, at a time when we really do need to get COVID back on the front pages and we need to start talking about how we're going to deal with it because the BA1 and BA2 strands apparently are going to lead to another outbreak which could affect our, well, not only our health but also our economy. So all that coming up this morning, the latest news, uh, the latest updates on the flood situation, etc. All the headlines on the half hour for you from our air newsroom. And we'll also play some great bangers, some tunes for you to get you in the mood on this Wednesday. Great to have your company, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, let's get into it on this Wednesday morning. And unfortunately, the state's flood threats won't be over just yet. The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has warned as more Sydney residents were evacuated yesterday and a second blast of torrential weather looms over the Hunter area and the mid-north coast. More than 100 evacuation orders have been issued alongside another 55 warnings with over 55,000 New South Wales residents so far impacted. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has addressed the crisis yesterday, confirming at least 242 people have been registered at the nine evacuation centres in operation across the state. There are 20,000 homes without power and a further 1,000 with no means of communication. Albo said this is the fourth flooding event we've seen in some of these areas, like the Hawkesbury, in the last 18 months. My heart goes out to the people who've suffered again and again. Stay safe, keep vigilant, keep following the advice which is being given by emergency personnel. Now, of course, Anthony Albanese will join the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet tomorrow to tour the flood-affected areas of Richmond and Windsor. 
He was asked whether it's finally time to raise the endlessly debated Warragamba Dam wall. And the Prime Minister said the issue, of course, is controversial and different views need to be considered. He said, and I quote, we need to get through the immediate crisis and then we need to examine any policy response that is required. Well, the damage is devastating. Dozens of cars were destroyed and roads have been left caked in mud and homes devastated by floodwaters in southwest Sydney. Communities along the Georges River at Lansvale and Chipping Norton either remained cut off yesterday or had started the painful process of clearing sludge and debris strewn through their homes after the floods peaked there early yesterday morning. And there are other areas around the outskirts of Sydney which are also being affected. I mean, if you look at places like Riverston, Richmond, Windsor, Camden, the cleanup continues. Unfortunately, it's going to be costly. And, of course, the Premier is worried about complacency with flood rescues being conducted in regions under evacuation orders. Uh, Mr Perrottet said yesterday, if those evacuation orders are in place, please leave. This event is far from over. Please don't be complacent wherever you are. All of this comes, of course, as a complex trough system made from a low and high pressure system sits over the central coast and is threatening communities with even more rain and strong winds, according to the Bureau. Now, Sydney, Wollongong, Bulleye, Port Kembla and Kiama are at high risk while a separate hazardous surf warning is in place for the central coast. What about the waves off Sydney? Um, I mean, they've been recorded at an average of four and a half to five metres over the last few days. Uh, you're mad if you do anything like rock fishing. Um, I mean, we've got wind gusts at places like Nora Head at 95 kilometres an hour, and even Sydney Airport seeing gusts of up to 80 kilometres an hour in the early hours of yesterday morning. Now, the Bureau's Jane Golding said the focus of the rainfall on Monday was the Illawarra, Sydney and the southern Hunter region. The central coast, Lake Macquarie, Cessnock and Newcastle are now in the eye of the storm. Now, she said we are seeing signs that there will be a load developed off the coast, which means we are now forecasting for some heavy rain to occur on the mid-north coast, probably up around Coffs Harbour. That's the area at risk today. We also saw quite a windy night for Sydney in the Hunter Districts. Look, as for Monday's deluge, some of the figures were unbelievable. Quite a few locations saw an additional 150 to 200 millimetres and some had copped between 5 and 800 millimetres over the past four days alone. Now, Emergency Services Minister in New South Wales, Steph Cook, said there was still major flooding across several rivers, including the Georges River and the Hawkesbury Nepean Valley. But the Hunter was now an area of key concern. The weather system is now moving into the lower Hunter. Throughout the course of yesterday, we started to expect to see more significant rainfall in that area. And of course, overnight and into today, it will move up the mid-north coast. So, Steph Cook says, we're really asking communities to bear with us, keep working with us. It's been a difficult four days. And it certainly has. Now, Miss Cook said some people had returned to their homes despite the evacuation orders not being lifted. Uh, the problem, of course, is that rivers rise very quickly and it can catch people unaware and they've had to be rescued as a result. 
Now, unfortunately as well, there's been um, an incidence of apparently a hoax. SES Commissioner Carleen York, I mean, she said she had to place volunteers at risk to save people who refused to leave areas under evacuation orders, including Sutherland and uh, places like Warrenora. But she said what was frustrating was that there was a hoax on Monday night where there was a false report of someone being stuck on a roof. And that obviously means that resources that are targeted to certain areas need to now then move and be taken away from others. Commissioner York said she was working with her counterparts in other states for flood support. Now, it all comes as the Hawkesbury River reached its highest level in more than 40 years, nearing record flood levels as New South Wales battled through a third day of torrential rain yesterday. Residents in Windsor were told to evacuate as the river peaked at 13.93 metres, which is the highest flood level since 1978's 14.46 metres. The fifth and worst flood to hit the south-west Sydney suburb of Chiffing Norton this year has also left entire neighbourhoods cut off after the Georges River burst its banks. Residents were ordered to evacuate on Tuesday night, but many stayed in place, with the majority of homes lining the river two-storey residences. Yeah, it's a worry, it really is. In the Hawkesbury, footage from Brooklyn Ferry Services show fast-moving waters and strong currents of 4.3 knots between Dangar Island and Brooklyn. Uh, so you've got to really steer clear of any of those waterways. I mean, you shouldn't be anywhere near them. Castle Hill Showground has been opened as emergency safe as an emergency safe haven for livestock and domestic pets, while residents in flood-stricken areas continued to evacuate. Well, a state of natural disaster was declared for dozens of New South Wales local government areas as torrential rain and major flooding smashed Greater Sydney and regional New South Wales yesterday. And that happened at around 11 o'clock. Um, Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt declared a natural disaster in 23 new local government areas with residents across Metro Sydney, Hawkesbury, Central Coast and the Illawarra eligible now for disaster payments as widespread flooding continues to impact the state. I'll go through those LGAs. Uh, if you've been affected by flooding, uh, you are entitled to natural disaster payments. Blacktown, Blue Mountains, Camden, Canterbury Bankstown, Campbelltown, Central Coast, Cessnock, Fairfield, Georges River, Hawkesbury, Hornsby, Kiama, Lithgow, Liverpool, Northern Beaches, Penrith, Shell Harbour, Shoalhaven, Sutherland, The Hills, Windjacarabi, Wallandilly, and Wollongong. Now, the Australian and New South Wales governments have worked cooperatively throughout this latest flood emergency to ensure defence and other resources were deployed as quickly as possible. Um, it is the second natural disaster that the Australian government has declared this year following, well, yet more devastating floods back in February. So assistance is being provided uh, through the jointly funded Commonwealth State Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. New South Wales Minister for Emergency Services and Flood Recovery, Steph Cook, said the immediate support is crucial for people impacted in those areas and vowed to work with communities to assess longer-term recovery needs. 
On the condition of meeting certain criteria, the disaster payment may be available to people whose homes and belongings have been damaged by the recent floods, as well as businesses and affected local councils to help with their recovery efforts. Well, let's hope today is a much better day. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, as expected yesterday, the Reserve Bank of Australia raised its benchmark interest rate by 0.5 percentage points. If lenders follow the RBA's move, monthly repayments on the average new home loan in New South Wales of $781,000 will increase by $216 a month. On a half a million dollars of initial borrowing, the hike is set to add $138 a month to instalments and double that amount on $1 million. Nearly every lending economist had been expecting this rise, a 50 basis point lift by the Reserve Bank. The latest increase, announced at 2.30 yesterday, follows a 50 basis point jump in June and a 25 basis point jump in May, the first, of course, since 2010. Now, the cash rate sits officially at 1.35%, and we know the Reserve Bank is widely expected to increase rates again next month, with a further 50 basis points the most common forecast among experts. In a statement accompanying yesterday's rate increase, RBA Governor Philip Lowe said the bank's board expects to take further steps in the process of normalising monetary conditions in Australia over the months ahead. Dr Lowe said the size and timing of future interest rate increases will be guided by the incoming data and the board's assessment of the outlook for inflation and the labour market. The board is committed to doing what is necessary to ensure that inflation in Australia returns to target over time. Now, of course, that target is around 2 to 3%. The most recent official reading of inflation, as we know, was 5.1%. But the Reserve Bank of Australia is expecting an increase to 7% by the end of this year. The RBA is hoping to get inflation down toward 2 to 3% next year. So there we go. Uh, how will that affect borrowers in Australia? And in particular, as we've mentioned on this program in recent weeks, those two-thirds of households in some areas of Western Sydney in particular that are already dealing with mortgage stress. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company on this Tuesday. Well, in the latest COVID-19 news, I read that Health Minister Brad Hazard is pushing the federal government to quickly roll out the fourth dose of the COVID vaccine for all Australians. It was revealed yesterday the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, that's ATAGI, will meet today to deliberate the wider rollout. Now, Minister Hazard said he had called for a fourth dose for all Australians at a meeting of all health ministers with their federal counterpart, Mark Butler. Now, the minister said, I actually raised that issue at the health ministers' meeting. We need to move and we need to move quickly. If there is no single supply... I'd like to see the rules change as quickly as possible to allow the fourth dose for a much greater age bracket that is currently constrained. Mr Hazard, though, said he was not aware of any supply issues at this point. Now, the New South Wales Chief Health Officer, Dr Kerry Chant, 
said her personal view was in favour of a fourth dose, but she would defer to Atagi for the official advice. She said in a statement yesterday, it's been six months since my third dose. I don't think I wouldn't mind a bit of a top-up in my immune protection, heading into what I've now described as a wave that's coming. The comments come after it was revealed earlier this week that Australia's top doctors will urgently consider rolling out a fourth COVID dose to the nation as New South Wales' Chief Health Officer warned a third wave could bring the economy to its knees. Another wave of the pandemic is already building, with flu and COVID combining to cripple the workforce. Two new variants of the virus, BA4 and BA5, are behind 35% of all cases in New South Wales, and they're expected to become the dominant strain in the next few weeks. Cases have grown by 17% in the last week, with almost 9,000 new diagnoses in the 24 hours to Sunday. Experts blame the more infectious new variants, which can evade immunity gained from the vaccines and earlier infections, along with the rise of other respiratory viruses. The Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation at Targi will discuss expanding the fourth dose for another for under-65s oh, yeah. when they meet today. And that's something infectious diseases physician Paul Griffin says makes sense. Professor Griffin said Atagi had expanded the eligibility last month to include the immuno-incompromised and those at higher risk of getting ill from COVID, even if they are under the age of 65. With the professor saying, we have more infectious sub-variants where our vaccine protection is now waning. I think particularly as we go through what looks to be a very significant wave of transmission, increasing access to that fourth dose would make sense. Now, Professor Griffin said infection immunity was not guaranteed against the two new strains, but there was no evidence they are more severe than previous ones. The Chief Health Officer, Dr Kerry Chant, put businesses and employers on notice, warning that hospitalisations were expected to spike in late July this month and early next month, August. She said workforce across all industries will be significantly impacted. Case numbers and hospitalisations would likely be of a similar magnitude to the Omicron wave in January, which brought many industries to a halt. Dr Chan said that was our first taste of Omicron, but we've also got the flu and RSV. A wave is coming and we know the vaccines have been very effective in preventing people from getting severely ill. But against the Omicron variant, they aren't good in preventing infections. Now, Dr Chan also said managing the virus had changed and it was clear that three doses and even four were required to flatten the curve. She said yesterday, my clear message is that you need three doses and or four doses. Last year, we said two. It's clear you need three or four now. Dr Chan said the health workforce was seeing absenteeism and the trend was likely to be replicated in other industries. Well, more than 90% of 600 New South Wales businesses surveyed said they were struggling with workforce shortages. Staff shortages is the number one issue we are hearing from businesses, according to Business New South Wales Chief Daniel Hunter. More workers off with COVID 
will put even more pressure on our members. All right, well, what do you make of that? If you want to comment, you can do so on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning. Yeah, this story popped up yesterday, and uh, I, I heard from a number of business owners and, and people that I know our Penrith way. Of course, being an old Penrith boy, it interested me greatly. And we're told the future of a historic paceway in Penrith is now hanging in the balance after Infrastructure New South Wales made the shock announcement that it would move to compulsorily acquire the site for a new NRL stadium. Now, straight away I'm thinking, what, New South Wales taxpayers are going to foot the bill for a new stadium in Penrith, despite the fact that, well, Penrith Panthers is a massive operation, and surely it could raise the capital, the money itself. Anyway, Infrastructure wrote to representatives of the Penrith Paceway at Station Streets earlier this week to formally commence negotiations for the acquisition of the land for the new Penrith Panthers stadium development across the entirety of the site. Now, the see, if you don't know uh, what it looks like there, if you've never been to that area, Penrith Stadium... Uh, across the road is Panthers, which is a quite a massive development. And they've even got spare land out the back. I don't know why they can't build a new stadium there. Anyway, but uh, the Paceway sits adjacent to both the stadium and also Panthers. Now, the head of projects New South Wales, Tom Gellibrand, said... On July the 4th, the proposed area for the project has been researched at length and will unfortunately require the acquisition of the whole of the property owned and occupied by the Penrith District Agricultural, Horticultural and Industrial Society. So basically, the old Penrith Paceway. It's where they hold things like the Penrith Show each and every year. If an agreement is unable to be reached, Infrastructure New South Wales may commence the compulsory acquisition process. Infrastructure New South Wales will make a genuine attempt to acquire the property by means of private agreements with you for at least six months from the date of this letter. That's what the uh, advice to the Paceway read. Now, just 24 hours after contacting representatives behind the Penrith Paceway, Infrastructure New South Wales announced the commercial negotiations surrounding the site. The existing Penrith Stadium will continue to be available for the Penrith Panthers 2023 NRL season, which provides certainty to the Penrith Panthers and its fans. The statement went on to read, following a six-week community consultation program, feedback from over 3,000 people provided a clear picture of what the new stadium needs to deliver. The Paceway site would facilitate a state-of-the-art stadium with an improved game day experience for fans with modern amenities that exists within a precinct that is activated throughout the week, not just on event days. However, Penrith District Agricultural, Horticultural and Industrial Society have hit back and they told the Daily Telegraph yesterday the future of the group and the Penrith Paceway was in jeopardy over the move by the New South Wales government. Now their CEO, that's the CEO of the Penrith Showground, Tash Greentree, she told News Corp the plan to take over the site for the stadium signs the death warrant for the entire showground and all activities conducted within, which has nowhere to immediately relocate to ensure continuity of their businesses. 
The advice from Infrastructure New South Wales flies in the face of recent conversations with Minister for Western Sydney, Stuart Ayres, which had indicated a win-win would be reached in any negotiations. Well, Miss Greentree is right. It's hard to see how there's a win in this for the Penrith Paceway. Now, Ms Greentree said there was no suggestion the New South Wales government would relocate the paceway or continue operations in any way. She said we are totally devastated by this news. If we have no viable new home to go to, we will need to close and we won't be able to come back from that. We could have been a part of a terrific future for Penrith, but now we're looking down the barrel of absolute ruin. She went on to say, I can't understand why the government would rip the heart of our community like this. To our knowledge, no planning has been done to indicate how our entire 11 hectare site would be used for the stadium. And there are no plans available for the community to comment on. And she concluded saying the government has taken it upon itself to arbitrarily make decisions about the future, our future, and acquire land before a plan has even been endorsed. Now, society representatives revealed multi-million dollar plans to redevelop the Penrith Paceway site into a mixed-use housing development. The plans, earmarked in 2018, would see the development of 2,393 apartments across as many as 34 residential towers, ranging from two 16-storey towers on the site, as well as a hotel, central park and a supermarket. Now, the Paceway site offers Penrith a once-in-a-generation opportunity to contribute to improving local connections to provide an urban hinge between Penrith's residential recreation spaces, town centre and tourist offerings and the creation of a new model of livability and entertainment. That's according to planners of the project. Most significantly, the Paceway has the chance to provide a heart to the recently announced suburban stadium redevelopment for the Penrith Panthers, providing a meeting location for before and after dining and nightlife entertainment. Now, the redevelopment of the site proposed by Capital Corporation on behalf of the club would have resulted in fundraising for the relocation of the Penrith Paceway to a like-for-like facility. An Infrastructure New South Wales spokeswoman said timing of construction for a new stadium will be confirmed once the acquisition process is completed and the scope for the new stadium has been determined. The department planned to complete these works by the end of this year. Now, Penrith State Liberal MP Stuart Ayres said he welcomed the negotiations by Infrastructure New South Wales. Mr Ayres said the stadium redevelopment is a significant opportunity for Penrith and it's critical we achieve the best outcome possible for our whole community. He said the practical outcome of this is that Penrith Stadium will continue to be used by the Penrith Panthers in 2023 and available to other hirers. Now, Mr Ayres said the Penrith Paceway, its harness racing and agricultural show have been an important part of Penrith for a long time. He also said these negotiations are as much about securing their long-term future in Penrith as they are about redevelopment of the stadium. He said the scope for the new stadium will be determined once the acquisition process is concluded, which is expected to be late this year. Okay, well, we'll just watch this space, but I suspect that there will be many in Penrith unhappy by this announcement. And, of course... Uh, the critics will be lining up saying the New South Wales government is looking after the Penrith Panthers rather 
than the community of Penrith itself. I mean, there's more to Penrith and there's more to New South Wales and Rugby League. Anyway, if you care to comment, there's a post on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Nice to have you company. It is Wednesday, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, 12 members of a religious group in Toowoomba in Queensland have been arrested after the death of an eight-year-old girl who Queensland police say was allegedly denied life-saving medication in the belief she would be healed by God. (laughs) Elizabeth Rose Struss had type 1 diabetes and died in her family's uh, Rangeville home west of Brisbane back on January the 7th. Police allege her parents, who have previously been charged with murder, began withholding insulin six days earlier. Police allege paramedics were not called to the scene until 5.30 the next day, with the Courier-Mail reporting members of the church group believing she would be resurrected. Can you believe this? The girl's parents, Kerry Elizabeth Struss and Jason Richard Struss, were charged with murder and torture offences earlier this year. They have not yet entered pleas and will remain in custody until their next hearing at the Toowoomba Magistrates Court due later this month. They are also charged with failing to provide the necessities of life. Now, police allege others also bear culpability in little Elizabeth's death. Now, the arrests yesterday were of other members of their small and tightly knit religious group who were allegedly present when the eight-year-old died, reportedly singing and praying to God to heal her. Detective Acting Superintendent Gary Watts alleged all 12 were uh, aware Elizabeth's condition uh, was obviously perilous. They were present during the course of those fateful six days and did not take any steps to provide medical assistance. He said the religious group comprised of three families and that those arrested included seven women and five men. Two were in their 60s, a man and a woman. One was a 19-year-old man and the rest were in their 20s and 30s. All were arrested in a home in Harristown. Elizabeth's sister, Jade, the eldest of eight siblings, told Nine's A Current Affair earlier this year that the group referred to themselves as, quote, the Saints. The 23-year-old said the group formed as a breakaway from a more mainstream church, which they believed to be corrupt and have become stricter over the years. They did not celebrate Christmas, they rejected medical intervention and believed their one purpose was to serve God. She told A Current Affair they're extreme, they're small, they're controlled. Now, the detective involved, Detective Watts, said that in nearly 40 years of policing, he had not dealt with a matter like this. He said, it's a very complex investigation, and I'm not aware of a similar event in Queensland, let alone Australia. The detective says a multi-unit investigation, including child protection, child trauma and homicide investigators called Operation Uniform Music, had been put together the six month uh, had put together rather the six month investigation that led to a total of 14 arrests. The 12 arrested this week were expected to face court today when police say they would argue against any bail applications. Boy oh boy. Can you believe this? So Queensland police have arrested 12 members of this religious group over the death of little eight-year-old Elizabeth Struss. Marcus Paul in the morning.
Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Give us a like and a follow on Facebook and also a subscribe on our YouTube channel. Well, I read with interest that GP wait times are increasing as Australia faces the perfect storm of flu, COVID and a doctor shortage. Uh, reports from the ABC suggest that unfortunately the wait time to see GPs in some areas is blown out. Data from Australia's largest healthcare booking platform, uh, Health Engine, reveals many people are waiting longer on average to see a local general practitioner. In New South Wales, in 2019, people waited just over two and a half days for an appointment. But by May this year, that had jumped to more than four days. Delays in Victoria increased from 1.98 days in 2019 to more than three days this year. Health Engine is used by more than 7,000 medical practices for patients to book appointments and has 3.9 million active users each month. Last year, the Federal Department of Health commissioned the company to build Australia's COVID-19 vaccination platform for $3.8 million. The data shows the average number of days between a person trying to book an appointment online to actually seeing a doctor. It does not give insight into whether people opted for earlier appointments or with a non-preferred GP or turned instead to emergency or try calling to get a more immediate appointment. But Dr Bruce Willett from the Royal Australian College of GPs said there is no doubt general practitioners are in high demand. He told the ABC, I've been a GP for 35 years now and I haven't seen a winter like this where we're seeing such extraordinarily high numbers of influenza. And of course, Australia is in the middle of a high flu season. Data from the National Influenza Surveillance Report shows up to June 2022, there have been almost 150,000 flu notations, which is higher than five-year averages. Normally, influenza peaks as late as, uh, as a late winter phenomenon. On top of that, we're seeing record numbers of COVID and we're seeing a whole raft of other viruses like RSV, according to the doctors. We're seeing a perfect storm of a whole range of issues coming together. And unfortunately, the doctors also go on to say we're seeing the chronic underfunding of Medicare, meaning that young medical graduates are not treating general practice as a career. We're in danger then of running out of GPs because of that. All of those things are coming together to cause really an acute shortage for now. And the situation we're being warned is likely to get worse. A report by Deloitte released in May of this year shows demand for GPs will increase by nearly 40% in the next decade, nearly 50% in the cities. But a GP shortfall will mean more than 11,000 doctors desperately needed by Australia's health system won't be in the workforce. Uh, Dr Willett says practices are being forced to either abandon bulk billing or go broke. We've certainly seen examples of both of those things. Well, doctors groups have been calling for a substantial increase to the Medicare rebate for GPs to encourage more medical graduates to enter the field. The Medicare Benefits Scheme rebate only increased by 1.6% from July the 1st this year for most medical services, including GP care. Advocates fear the issue will worsen when baby boomer GPs start retiring and the demand for healthcare continues to increase. Well, that's true. I mean, have we thought about this in the future? 
As more and more baby boomer GPs start retiring, where are the new doctors going to come from? Well, a spokesman for Health Minister Mark Butler said the government will set up 50 bulk-billed urgent care clinics across the country, making it easier for people to see a doctor. That announcement was made during the election campaign. It has also set up a Medicare task force to identify the best ways to improve access to healthcare for patients with chronic illness, and they will distribute $220 million in grants to GP practices so that they can see more patients. Well, we'll watch this space. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has rejected criticism that he's spending too much of his time abroad, proclaiming yesterday that he hasn't had a day off in a very long period of time. Since his election triumph on May the 21st, Mr Albanese has made three foreign trips and there's set to be another one to Fiji in the next week. Now, his first trip to Tokyo for the Quad security meeting was just hours after his swearing-in. Shortly afterwards, he made his first official state visit to Indonesia, and last week, of course, he jetted off for a whirlwind European tour, which included the NATO summit, a meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron in Paris, and a stop in Kiev to see Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Now, several opposition MPs, unsurprisingly, have questioned the Prime Minister's travel schedule, with Shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tian describing the trips as, quote, concerning. He said on Monday, I think he probably would have said this on Sky, what we're seeing from Mr Albanese is very much a focus on everything international, and we're starting to see serious drift when it comes to incredibly important domestic issues, like energy, like skill shortages, like these floods we're now confronting on the eastern seaboard. That's according to Dan Tian. However, during an impromptu press conference on his way back from Europe, the Prime Minister hit back at the claims. Mr Albanese said, I've attended the Quad Leaders meeting the day after being sworn in. That wasn't a decision of mine. That was a decision of the former Prime Minister to hold the election on May the 21st. I attended the NATO summit. It was important that Australia be represented there and it was important that we deal with the relationship with France and Europe. And I believe my visit to Ukraine was important to show solidarity. We can't separate international events from the impact on Australia and Australians. And those people might like to say which of the events I've attended on behalf of Australia that I shouldn't have attended. Now, Mr Albanese dismissed claims Labor had been too harsh on Scott Morrison for being slow to arrive at flood-affected areas. Albo said, I've not had a day off in a very long time. If people want to argue that I'm not working hard, then they can argue that case. Now, Mr Albanese is due to visit flood-affected areas of New South Wales in the coming days. New South Wales Liberal Premier Dominic Perrottet has also defended the Prime Minister. He told reporters on Tuesday that Albo had contacted him from Europe. I won't go into where he was from an operational perspective, but he called me yesterday as soon as he could, Mr Perrottet said. He's overseas on work and that's important for Australia. Yeah, look, I'm not going to be distracted by all of those that want to compare Scott Morrison to Anthony Albanese. I already think we're in better hands, but um, obviously uh, with such a hectic international schedule, uh, the critics have popped their heads up looking for ammo. Uh, it's disingenuous 
to say the least. Anyway, uh, he has returned to Australia and no doubt will start to address some of those issues. I mean, we've just had an interest rate hike again yesterday, cost of living pressures continue and a whole range of other issues. Uh, Although, I have to say, in his absence, the acting Prime Minister Richard Miles has done a good job. I mean, he was there on Tuesday night in the heart of Richmond and Windsor where, where the floods were, offering government support. Anyway, if you want to have your say on that, you can do so on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, angry, heartbroken and fed up Americans are grieving for the lives lost after yet another mass shooting. A rooftop shooter firing into a crowd during a 4th of July Independence Day parade in Highland Park, Illinois, has led to a response which obviously once would have been filled with disbelief and shock, but has now evolved into futile outrage and exasperation. At around about Monday, 10am local time, a series of gunshots were heard during a parade in the affluent Chicago suburb. Six people were killed in the attack and 26 wounded, with the suspected gunman perched on a rooftop wielding a high-powered rifle. Now, while the suspected shooter remained at large, in the hours after the assault, a 22-year-old has since been arrested and taken into custody by police. Speaking to the Associated Press in the aftermath of the attack, local man and parade attendee Ron Tuzan shared a bleak assessment of the shooting. It's commonplace now, is what he said. We don't blink anymore. Until laws change, it's going to be more and more of the same. Now, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, issued a longer statement denouncing and expressing anger over the attack. He said there are no words for the kind of monster who lies in wait and fires into a crowd of families with children celebrating a holiday with their community. There are no words for the kind of evil that robs our neighbours of their hopes, their dreams, their futures. Illinois Congressman Brad Schneider echoed Governor Pritzker's sentiments, adding that enough is enough when it comes to gun laws. He said, and I quote, In his tweet, my condolences to the family and loved ones, my prayers for the injured and for my community, and my commitment to do everything I can to make our children, our towns, our nation safer. Enough is enough. Well, according to the Gun Violence Archive, the Highland Park attack was the United States, you ready for this, 317th mass shooting in which four or more victims were injured or killed through gun violence. That's this year. It was also the United States' 15th mass murder in which three or more people were killed at one time in a singular location. Now, the attack was a mere six weeks after a 19-year-old man took the lives of 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Subsequently, that attack was just 10 days before an armed white supremacist entered a supermarket in a predominantly black neighbourhood in Buffalo, New York, killing 13 people. Not even 12 hours after Monday's attack, as messages of grief, anger and upset rippled through the United States, a fireworks display in downtown Orlando, Florida, sparked fears of another public shooting. One witness telling local publications the sounds weren't lining up with the fireworks. Out of nowhere, we saw people running and then we heard what we thought were shots. 
Some attempted to run away and seek shelter. Others jumped into a nearby lake. I mean, that's how, that's how scared and worried people in the United States are. Now, Orlando police issued a statement confirming there was no evidence of a shooter in the area and no injuries, fortunately, were reported. Yeah, but still. Now, in the aftermath of the most recent attack, US President Joe Biden recommitted to his plans of implementing bipartisan gun reform legislation, expressing shock at the senseless gun violence that has yet again brought grief to an American community. However, sharing words of grief and anger, former White House official under the Obama administration, David Axelrod, gave a sobering indictment of the monstrous but commonplace tragedy. A friend took his kids to July 4th parade in Highland Park today. His son has special needs, he wrote in Twitter, in a post that's been shared more than 11,000 times. When shots rang out, ran out, They ran for their lives, the dad pushing his grown son's wheelchair, which at one point tumbled over. On America's Day, what has become a sickingly American story? Yeah, when will it all end? There certainly does need to be gun reform in the United States. Marcus Paul in the morning. That's about it for today's program. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Uh, there'll be plenty of content up on the Facebook page. Please give it a like and a follow. Marcus Paul in the morning. That's where we post the links uh, to the broadcast, the podcast, and any of the major stories that we follow here on the program. I do uh, make sure I, I read through all of your comments, and I do appreciate them all, and from time to time we give them a mention on the show as well. I haven't done that a lot lately, and I'll start to do it a bit more from tomorrow. If you want to send me an email, you can do so, marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. Enjoy the rest of your day. Please take it easy if you are out there in all that wet weather. And we'll join you again tomorrow between 7 and 9 around Australia here on the iHeartRadio platform, Starter FM, on TuneIn and again on the podcast. Take care. Bye. Marcus Paul. All right, goodies. Walking stress. This will get you the goodies.